Welcome to Beacon Baptist Church of Lexington, South Carolina. We trust today's podcast will be a blessing to you. And amen. When we come to this book, I, I feel like I've said this numerous times already, but just real quickly to remind uh, where we remind you of where we have been. Uh, we've been looking in this first chapter of this first epistle that Paul wrote to Timothy, and we have been considering a extended series of messages, preaching through this book verse by verse, entitled uh, "How to Behave Yourself in the House of God," and of course we get that out of chapter number three in verse uh, in verse number uh, let's see verse number 15 is where we derive that as far as the book study and we'll get uh, to that momentarily but as we come to this first chapter we have been uh, calling this first chapter the epicenter of the epistle in other words everything that we find in this first chapter is foundational to uh, what we will see in the rest of this book. And so as we've walked our way from verse number one through uh, last time we were in this text, we concluded with verse number four. We saw in verse number one, the author of the epistle, Paul, an apostle of Jesus Christ, by the commandment of God, our Savior, and Lord Jesus Christ, which is our hope. And we spent an extended period of time dealing with the author being the apostle Paul and what the Bible has to say about him. Then moving into verse number two, we move from the author of the epistle to the audience of the epistle and dealt with what the Bible tells us and teaches us about this young man, this young student in the ministry uh, by the name of Timothy. And then as we looked at verse number three and verse number four, we dealt with what, the, what these verses say about the appeal of this epistle, the appeal that Paul is making to Timothy. He says, as I besought thee to abide still at Ephesus when I went into Macedonia, that thou mightest charge some that they teach no other doctrine, neither give heed to fables and endless genealogies which minister questions rather than godly edifying, which is in faith so do. And so we looked there and we dealt with, first of all, the heresies that existed in this church at Ephesus that Paul has appealed to Timothy to stand against. He calls them fables and endless genealogies, and I'm not going to re-preach those, but those are the two heresies in Timothy's day that he would have to stand against, and we see those two heresies in our day as well under different headings and categories, but when you boil it all down to the brass tacks of it all, they're still fables, and they're still endless genealogies, and the devil never changes his tricks, amen. But so we see see these heresies, but then uh, lastly we concluded with uh, what the Bible here says in the last phrase of verse number four, when it talks about how Paul appealed and commissioned Timothy to, uh, to, to preach to these people and to tell them not to give heed to fables and endless genealogies which minister 
questions, and then it says this, rather than godly edifying, which is in faith, and then he says, so do. And we talked about how Paul is highlighting for Timothy what is most important when it comes to instructing others in the truth of God's Word. We talked about how uh, he said that, uh, that the Word of God and true Bible teaching is to rather than ministering questions, it is to provide the hearers with teaching on how how they are to uh, live godly. They are to be edified in Christian living. How they are to, uh, in other words, emulate the Lord's glorious character by the way they live their lives. You know, Bible preaching is to give us godly edifying rather than ministering questions. And so we saw that. Bible teaching is not uh, given to confuse us, but rather to bring clarity to us in the moments of uh, confusing situations in our life. It is to offer answers rather than questions. And uh, these folks in Timothy's day were hearing sermon after sermon and lesson after lesson and the false teachers were giving them doctrines that the entire purpose of it was to minister questions rather than godly edifying. And so uh, we see that this, these false teachers were, uh, were uh, through their teaching that ministered questions, keeping these folks coming back to them for more, hoping to get their questions answered and never receiving it. And that's the way a lot of folks that attend so-called churches are uh, going. Uh, that's what they're dealing with today. Amen. Showing up to church service after service, wanting answers, wanting help, and never finding any, never receiving any. Amen. All they get is more confused and more distracted and uh, uh, have more questions than they do answers from the Word of God. And so I want us to move from verse number 4 and I want us to look at verse number 5. Look at verse number 5. In verse number 1 we've dealt with the author of this epistle. In verse number 2 we dealt with the audience of this epistle. In verse number 3 and 4, we dealt with the appeal of this epistle. Tonight in verse number 5, I want to say something about the aim of this epistle. Notice what he says here in verse number 5. He moves from the subject of verse 3 and 4 into verse 5, and the Apostle Paul writes this to Timothy. He says, Now the end of the commandment is charity out of a pure heart and of a good conscience and of faith. Faith unfeigned. Tonight I want us to center our message around this one verse. And while in the days to come we will add verse 6 and 7, the thought does not necessarily conclude until the end of verse 7. Uh, but I want us to focus on what the Bible is saying here in verse number 5 before we add 
on verse 6 and 7. When we come to verse 5, we find that the Apostle Paul, after he has done uh, teaching on some of these uh, subjects and he has in his introductory remarks uh, tried to uh, give instruction to Timothy and really bring us to the point of what he was wanting to say, amen, I believe as any uh, Bible preacher does, amen, it takes us a little while to get where we're going, amen. In verse number 5, we find the Apostle Paul, it's now coming straight to the point of what more than just Timothy, uh, but now he is telling Timothy and those who would read this book later on, and I have no doubt in my mind that God also intended for Timothy uh, to read this or to share this in some way, shape, or fashion with the church at Ephesus that he had been called to minister to. He is now coming straight to the point Paul is to Timothy and to this church as to not just what he wants them to do, but why he wants them to do it and what is the aim of all of these things that he has already said in verse number 4 and 5 and with them knowing his purpose, with them knowing his aim when he tells them some of the things that he is going to tell them in the rest of uh, this chapter 1 and then all of chapters 2 through 6 they will understand his reasoning behind what he's told them to do. If you think about the situation that they are in these Ephesian Christians have been faithfully attending their worship services. They have been faithfully hearing that which uh, they uh, coined as Christian teaching and it would not have been their uh, fault necessarily that those that were teaching them were teaching them falsehood and error. We don't find anywhere in this book that uh, they were listening to this as a as a, in a state of rebellion to what was the real truth of the scriptures. Um, this is a very interesting period of time in uh, church history. Uh, they were not in the same situation that you and I are as we have a Bible that is completed. We have the, uh, the true, uh, fulfilled and complete, revealed word of God uh, to us. Amen. To where we can compare scripture with scripture and know what is right and what is wrong. This was still a period of time that uh, Paul uh, describes as a period where they were given special graces and uh, Paul called it a time where he would wink at some things or overlook some things if you will. This was a preparatory time as the word of God was still coming to a place of completion and so we find that uh, what they would have experienced and their church services would have been uh, slightly different from what we experience in our church services. Paul does not uh, uh, condemn them uh, for believing the truth they heard, but rather he tells Timothy to tell them uh, to stop giving themselves to it because it is wrong and it's ministering questions and it's not edifying them. And that's the reason he gives. That's the situation they're in. And so going to church and being faithful and then being told, stop listening to what you're being taught and what's being preached to you because all of that's wrong 
would put the faithful child of God, put the faithful church attender that has been uh, told false doctrine in a precarious place. And so therefore, it would be important for them to understand not just what is being told to them, but why it is being told to them. Wouldn't you agree tonight? Amen. Verse number five, he says, now the end of the commandment is charity out of a pure heart and of a good conscience and of faith unfeigned. This word end, as I have already stated in my alliterated point heading, if you will, for this evening, speaks of the aim or the purpose or the end result of this commandment or of this charge that uh, Paul has extended to Timothy and of the charge that Paul is now telling Timothy that he is to declare to others. Look with me at what verse number five says here. Now the end of the commandment. <coughs> I'm jumping a little bit ahead of myself, but <coughs> there are some folks that would have you to believe that this word commandment the end of the commandment would be a reference to either the Ten Commandments or to the law. But I don't believe that. Especially when you consider the word that Timothy, that Paul rather, is using to Timothy. This word is, uh, is, is the same essentially as the word that he used in verse number three when he told him, as I besought thee, at, uh, as I besought thee to about at Ephesus when I went into Macedonia, that thou mightest charge some. This word command is essentially the same word as command and, or excuse me, as charge. And so therefore command and charge are being used interchangeably here in this passage. And they are referring to the same group of teachings and instructions that has already been given. So we see that Paul is telling Timothy the main design or purpose behind the command or the charge that he gave several verses back in verse number three. Paul is telling Timothy what it will look like if you can uh, think about it this way. He's telling Timothy what it will look like when this charge that he gave is completed and comes to its place of ultimate fulfillment, the end of the commandment, the aim, the ultimate purpose, if you will, of this command or this charge being given is this. And he lays it out for us here in verse number five. I'll say this this evening when he says that the end of the commandment is charity, as he says in verse number five. This is more than just simply Paul telling Timothy why he wrote the epistle. It goes much deeper than that, although that is seen in a sense. Paul has already expressed to Timothy why this letter was written in verse 3 and 4. As you know, we've already talked about it at length. Paul wanted Timothy to charge 
uh, those in Ephesus to, uh, to charge those who uh, wanted Timothy to charge the false teachers in Ephesus rather to abandon their lives given to the spreading of dangerous, damaging, and damning false doctrine. Timothy by doing so would also be charging this congregation in Ephesus to not give heed to or attach themselves and their life uh, to the falsehoods that these teachers have attached themselves to, to their own spiritual destruction. Here, contrary to what others have said, it wouldn't make sense to interpret this as the Ten Commandments, and part of that would be because the commandment here is not mentioned in the plural, but it's mentioned in the singular. Amen. I would imagine if he was talking about more than one commandment, he would have said the end of the commandments, not the end of the commandment. So I don't think it's talking about the Ten Commandments. I don't think it's talking about the law in general, over 600 laws being referred to as the law in a singular form as some would suggest. And I, and I believe that is primarily because it wouldn't, there would be no purpose for doing so. You say, preacher, why would you say that? Because he mentions the law in verse 7 through 9. See what it says here in verse 7, desiring to be teachers of the law, understanding neither what they say nor whereof they affirm. But we know that the law is good if a man use it lawfully, knowing this, that the law is not made for a righteous man, but for the lawless and disobedient, and for the ungodly and for sinners, for uh, unholy and profane, for murders of fathers and murders of mothers, for manslayers, and it goes on and on in the verses. You would think that if he was talking about the law and in just two verses he would call the law the law that he would probably have done so two verses earlier. Could it be that the reason why two different forms of terminology is used is because one is talking about the law, the part that is being expressly uh, called the law, and then the commandment is dealing with something else. As I've studied behind folks that try to bring these two together and say the commandment is the law, their arguments seem to overlap and it renders the commandment of verse number five almost meaningless when it comes to the context of our text tonight. I have heard where uh, rather read where others have said, well, this commandment is not the law, but they say that it is the gospel, the ministry of the gospel. John Gill and others in their commentaries have suggested that. To me, it doesn't make sense that uh, it would be, uh, it would be t interpreted as the ministry of the gospel or the gospel within itself because there seems to be much more in focus here in these verses than simply discussing the preaching of the gospel. I believe when he says the commandment, he is referring back to the very word that he used, the charge that he's talking about in verse number three. It keeps the context together. It allows us to easily understand what he is discussing without trying to add interpretations to what the Bible already says. And if you remember Sunday night, I mentioned that the best way to interpret the scriptures and to define 
define the Word of God is to let the Word of God define itself. Amen. And so without trying to find obscure meanings to our text, we let the Bible say what it says. We keep it in its context. Amen. Because a text out of context is a pretext for a proof text. Amen. They taught me that in Bible college. Amen. In other words, you take a verse out of its context, you can say anything you want to out of the verse. That's what the Jehovah's Witnesses do. That's what the Mormons will do. That's what others will do to try to prove their false teachings. The Catholic Church will do it and others have. Amen. I've only done it one time in my life, but I did meet a Catholic that could argue and quote verses for their argument. Amen. But the sad thing was every time in my debate with this young man that was a was a die-hard Catholic, if I can use that loose terminology, and one was studied in a Catholic school, reared in Catholic churches, amen. I've never met one that knew what they believed and why they believed it. But everything he mentioned to me was verses out of context or verses that had, as this text talked about, the endless genealogies had things that, and fables, things that were not in the scriptures attached to them by uh, scholars or by priests or by other books outside of the Bible or by what they so-called as church history, and they use those with the same authority as the scriptures. Amen. Can I just say this tonight, and I know nobody in this building disagrees with this, Amen. But there's no book that has the same authority as the Word of God. Amen. There's no history book. There's no church history uh, knowledge. Amen. That stands up to the Word of God. The Word of God, the King James Bible in our English language is the final authority of all faith and practice. And it is God's Word that is forever settled in heaven. Amen. So, I don't think it's talking about the law. I don't think it's talking about the gospel. <coughs> I do believe it's talking about what Paul has already been talking about <coughs> in verse number three. And so, keeping the context where it is, keeping the verses where they're meant to be and understanding them for how they are written, I would submit to you that the context of verse 5, when it talks about the commandment, is still the charge that Paul gave to Timothy and the charge that Timothy is to give to the false teachers in Ephesus that are causing spiritual damage to Christians who are seeking truth from their so-called spiritual teachers. So as we look at this, we understand here that Paul is telling Timothy what is the deep-seated reason for this charge or this commandment, and he gives him the desired result of this charge that he is to give, and he tells him that the deep-seated reason and the desired result of all of this that has been said thus far is charity out of a pure heart, and charity out of a good conscience, and charity out of faith unfeigned. Now, there may be some folks out there this evening in <coughs> this church <coughs> that may be looking at me and saying, Preacher, I understand. I see that. It's written in my Bible in black and white. I see it there. But what in the world does that have to do with me? 
I'll say this, I've said it before, but I make no hesitation to say it again. I'm glad you asked. Amen. I want to make a couple of thoughts this evening, and I've been preaching about 30 minutes already, so I know I won't get to much. But I want to at least begin to give you a couple of thoughts about this charity and how it is the end result of what Paul is doing here. Let me say this. What Paul has been doing thus far is he has been pointing these people, pointing Timothy rather, to point the people of the, in the church at Ephesus from false doctrine to true doctrine. And so before we're done in this verse, we will see that there is a connection between true Bible doctrine and charity being not only issued from Paul to Timothy and from Timothy to Paul, but also that, that, that true Bible doctrine will cause charity to be produced from our life. And that's God's desire for every Every believer is that charity um, they abound from our lives, and it's because of the, the true Bible doctrine that gets put in us. I will clarify that more as we make our way through. Let me say, first of all, tonight something about the charity explained. If you're taking notes, that's number one underneath the heading of the aim of this epistle. Number one, the charity explained. Look at what the Bible says here in verse number five. Now the end of the commandment is charity. Now this word charity and charity in the Bible does not necessarily have to uh, do with what we do, what we use the word charity for in our day. When we, in our vernacular, when we talk about a charity, we're talking about the Red Cross. We're talking about Samaritan's Purse. We're talking about uh, the Salvation Army. We're talking about whatever charity you can think of. That's what we think of when we talk about charity. But that is not biblical charity. Of course, I believe most of you have been in church long enough to know that the, that the word charity here is speaking about a love, and in particular what has been called, making use of the Greek word for charity, the word agape. Now, I'm going to say something tonight uh, that probably will disrupt most of what you've heard about the word agape in your, in, in your Bible teaching down through the years. Now, I will say this. I believe that this word agape is a very strong word for love in the Scripture. However, to simply say that the word agape is God's love, not only is it incorrect, but it is spoken by many in our churches due to misinformation and never taking the time to study out the word itself for yourself. I'll say this. 
There are many different words in the Bible for the word love. There are three basic roots. There is the word agape, there is the word phileo, and then there is the word eros. We've heard, every one of us has heard that agape means God's love, that phileo is a brotherly kind of love, uh, and then uh, eros is a erotic kind of love, a more sensual kind of love. And why the basic tenets of those three things are true, a careful study of the Word of God and of these particular Greek words would allow you to understand that it is much more than just simply those simple blanket, uh, blanket explanations. It is much, the understanding of those words is much deeper and much more particular to the context in which it's in. Let me prove this to you just for a minute. I feel like I need to do that uh, because I believe you need to see this tonight. And if this is all we get to, that's fine. But I want to begin by explaining what charity means. So when we get to understanding what Paul says about the end of the commandment being charity, we'll have a little bit better of an idea of what's being spoken of here. Because I will say this, if the end of the commandment if the end of what Timothy is to teach this church is for the church to be engaged in God's love, they'll never be able to do it to its fullest capacity. The end means the ultimate fulfillment of it. You and I will never, although we can operate in the love of God, and no doubt the love of God works in us and through us, we will never be able to obtain in this lifetime a love as pure and uncorruptible as God's love. And so therefore, we'd have to close our Bibles tonight and say, you can't do that. So better luck in eternity. I wouldn't want to leave you with that, and I don't believe that's what's being stated here in this passage. Go with me to Revelation chapter number 3 this evening. Revelation chapter number 3 <clears throat> and verse number 19. Now any of you that have studied this particular subject that I'm dealing with with these Greek words tonight, if you've studied it out, you're not allowed to play, okay? Look at Revelation chapter 3, verse 19. My pastor used to say that all the time. We, he used to ask a question in our youth group, and he said, Preachers, y'all can't play. That's not fair to everybody else. And I would say, it is fair. They can read their Bible just like I can. Amen. But anyway, look at Revelation 3. Look at verse 19. Let me ask this question. When verse 19 says, As many as I love... I rebuke and chasten. Be zealous, therefore, and repent. Who's speaking there? We're having a little bit of class tonight. Who's speaking there? Jesus is speaking there. As many as I love, I chasten, or I rebuke and chasten. Be zealous, therefore, and repent. Who is he talking to? He's talking to the church. The church in Laodicea. Jesus here is speaking about his love for this church. What Greek word would you think he's using? Agape or phileo? You would think that he's using agape. He's not. This is phileo. 
Let me ask you this. Do you think Jesus has a brotherly love for his church? A simple, kind nod to the church? No, no, no. Must mean that these two words can be interchanged because God Himself is being said to have an agape love for this church. As many as I love, I rebuke and chasten. Okay? Now go with me tonight to John chapter number 5. John chapter number 5. This is going to be quick this evening. John chapter number 5. <clears throat> Y'all are getting there quicker than I am. John chapter number 5. Look at verse 20. John 5 verse 20. Again, this is Jesus speaking. He says, For the Father loveth the Son, and showeth him all things that... Him, all things that himself doeth. And he will show him greater works than these that he may marvel. It's talking about God the Father's love for God the Son. That word is phileo. It's not agape. To simply say that God's love is, the word agape means God's love is incorrect. Because that would mean that you have to reduce God the Father's love for God the Son to simply a brotherly or a friendship kind of love. And I would submit to you that God does not love His Son that way. I believe it's much deeper than that. I believe it's a greater love than we could ever imagine. Amen. Go with me now to John chapter, we won't get out of John, John chapter number 11. John chapter number 11. Look at verse number 2. John chapter number 11 and verse number 2. I believe that every one of us is familiar with this passage of Scripture. This is where Jesus raises Lazarus from the dead. Verse number 1 says, And now a certain man was sick named Lazarus of Bethany, the town of Mary and her sister Martha. Verse number 2, It was that Mary, it was that Mary which anointed the Lord with ointment and wiped, uh, wiped with her wiped his feet with her hair, whose brother Lazarus was sick. Look at verse 3. Therefore his sister sent unto him, saying, Lord, behold, whom he whom thou lovest is sick. Again, this is Jesus, and I understand this is someone that is close to him. This is almost a, a brother-type relationship, as close as they are. This is the only time that we find in the Bible, just several verses later in verse number 35, the shortest verse in the Bible, it was over this man that Jesus wept at his grave. But yet to say that this is agape is incorrect. That word is also phileo. Jesus, the one that you love, the Bible says here, is sick. I don't think that we could accuse Jesus' love as being any less than God's love. Look at verse number 36. 
verse 36 here. He says, notice the Bible said, verse 35, that Jesus wept. Then verse 36 said, then said the Jews, behold how he loved them, or how he loved him, excuse me. Behold how he loved him. Again, this is Jesus' love. Behold how Jesus loved him. Also phileo. Look at John 16. John 16, 27. John 16, 27. <clears throat> well, we see in the same principle we saw just a minute ago. For the Father himself, again Jesus speaking, for the Father himself loveth you uh, because ye have loved me and have believed that I am come out of God. The use of the word love there is not agape, but it's phileo. Talking about the Father's love for the Son. Now turn a couple of pages over to John 20. John 20 and verse 2. John 20 and verse 2. The Bible here speaking about Mary Magdalene. The Bible says, Then she runneth and cometh to Simon Peter and to the other disciple whom Jesus loved. The word love there is phileo. And saith unto them, They have taken away the Lord out of the sepulcher, and we know not where they have laid him. Jesus here is being described as someone who had love for John the, John the beloved, John the disciple. As we know, he is referred to in his gospel as the one whom Jesus loved. Amen. But the Bible here says that John was loved by Jesus and uses the word phileo to do it. So there must be more to these words of charity and love than just simply what we always hear. Sometimes it would do us better, amen, to instead of just always repeating what we hear others say, to do the study for ourselves. The more that I've studied the Word of God, the more i found out that even from preachers that I love and trust, that as I've studied, I have found out how several of them that I have heard and listened to have been incorrect in what they said. And I believe part of that is, is because it is so easy and so comfortable for us to listen to someone and repeat what they heard because, or what they said because of the respect that we have for them. Yet at the same time, we fail to think about how they might be doing the same thing. And so false information or maybe information that's not, not in itself completely false, but rather misguided in some way gets passed down and it taints our understanding of the Scripture. Sometimes it would do us better to be like the Bereans who the Bible said were more noble than those of Thessalonica because they searched the Scriptures to see whether the things that the apostles were telling them were so. I don't think we could have, you could have heard a more reputable teacher than the apostles of our Lord when it came to uh, teaching and preaching to folks about what thus saith the Lord. Yet uh, these Bereans, even when they heard the apostles preach, still searched the Scriptures to see whether they were so. That's why I make such a point to quote uh, Scriptures and to give you the verse references and to even ask you in the service to walk along with me and let your fingers do the walking and let your eyes and heart do some study and even in in the midst of a message. Amen. And so you don't have to take my word for it. 
Amen. You can learn it for yourself. But so when we examine charity, it is the Word of God. And here is what it means in uh, its reality. Amen. The Word of God is an unconditional sacrificial love. And it biblically not only refers to the love that God is and the love that God shows, but it also refers to the love that God enables in His children. It is the love of choice, or rather love that makes a choice to do so. It is the love of serving with humility. It is the highest kind of love. We've heard that, and that is true. It is the most noble kind of devotion in the Scriptures. It is, listen to this, this right here is what separates it from the others. It is the love of the will. And it is not motivated by superficial appearance. It is not motivated by emotional attraction. It is not even motivated by sentimental relationship. That's what separates it from phileo. Phileo is not simply a brotherly love, but it is a love based upon the senses. Agape is a love that deals with the heart. Phileo is a love that deals with the head. Phileo is, a, is to manifest some act of or uh, some act or some token of love. It is a visual representation of love. For agape deals with the cause behind the love and the depth of the love. While phileo deals with the fact of how it is displayed and how it is seen. It is seen sentimentally. It is seen relationally. It is seen in the emotional display of it on our faces. Phileo literally means to kiss. When you, when the word kiss in the Bible is used such as, as, as uh, Judas betraying Jesus with a kiss, it could be interchanged with phileo. It is a physical action of love. It means to love, to regard with affection, to be fond of to delight in a thing. Think about this, that to be fond of. When you're fond of somebody, there's a reason why you're fond of them. Is there not? Amen. There's people in this church I'm fond of for particular characteristics that you have that God has given you that makes you physically appealing to others in a relational way. Now, I love everybody in this church, and I would say I love everybody in this church equally. But there are, some, there are some attributes that you have that would make others more fond of being around you. That's what phileo brings in. Agape, yes, there is no reason why I love you, but I do it anyway. There, there, there has to be no fondness. There doesn't have to be any characteristics. There doesn't have to be. It is an unselfish love, and it is a love that is done simply by choosing to love. There's some people I've met in life that I love them because I choose to love them. 
It's not because they've really done much of anything to make me love them or make me be fond of them, but I choose to. Amen. And we all have folks like that. Amen. That the rest of folks would say, well, they're not very likable. They're definitely not very lovable, but you can love them. Amen. I believe Christ works that in his Christians, works that in his children to be able to love the unlovable. And even though they are unlovable, still choose to love them. And that's what separates these two words. Phileo. It is to be a friend to. It deals with personal attachment. It does deal with sentiment. And therefore, agape is different because it is not dealing with sentimental relationship. It is not based on pleasant emotions or good feelings that may result from a physical attraction or from a family bond. It does not depend on the world's criteria for love. And it is not based upon impulse. True agape love... I believe can only be found in those who are saved and those who know the source and the one who is the embodiment of what it is to be a, a true person of agape love. Christ is the ultimate embodiment of that unselfish love, that, uh, that, that love of the wheel where those that are the targets of his love have not earned it, amen, but he gives it to them anyway, amen. And aren't you glad for that in Christ, amen. However, as much as Christ was God, there were instances in his life where he did have physical, uh, he did have uh, emotional Bonds, if you will, emotional attachments with people like Lazarus, that, that word comes into play. It is not to mean that he has any less God as he loves that way, but it is to show the human side of that love. They got a love. I believe it's something that only a child of God can have because only you and I can truly know what it is and even set forth on the task to try to emulate God's love before a lost and dying world. A lost man knows nothing of the love of God. They've never experienced it. They've never received it. They don't know what it is to be uh, surrounded in the love of God. But those of you and I that are saved by the grace of God who can go back to a day in our life where we met the embodiment of true love. Amen. And we came into his presence and we were enraptured by his love for us and we realized how much he loved us and we accepted by faith the love that he showed for us in his dying for us. Amen. We know what it is to experience God's love and because of that we can therefore show that love to a lost and dying world. A lost person cannot do that. And so therefore, as Paul talks to these in the, uh, and talks to Timothy and persuades him and appeal, appeals to him uh, to do the work that he has called him to do in the city of Ephesus. He is not telling him that the reason why I'm doing this is because of our friendship. It's not because of our relationship, Timothy. It's not because of any bond that we have, but it is because I'm wanting to show the love of God in hell. I am leading you and instructing you and mentoring you and I want you as the pastor of the church at Ephesus to display God's agape love, that charity in that church. We see the love explained. 
I'm going to have to be done there tonight. But one writer said this. I'll close with this quote. True agape love is a sure mark of salvation. Let me ask you tonight as I, as I close. Do you know what it is to have experienced not conditional love? Not just relational love, not just love of fondness and attraction and emotion or the love between family. But have you ever learned what it is and come in contact experientially with a love that only God has for your soul? If you have, I'll say this, every single one of us that has should rejoice this evening that we've been able to experience true love that before He came to us, before God came and sent His Son. Amen. I'll say it like this. One of the uses of the word agape in the Bible is found in Romans 5 eight. But God commendeth His love. He demonstrated, He displayed His love toward us in that while we were yet sinners. Remember, no connection, completely unworthy. While we were yet sinners. He died for us. Amen. That is the kind of love that I hope and I pray that you have experienced in your life and you received into your heart. But if not, you can today for the very first time to do more than say I love you, but to realize the one, amen, who knows what love is and that John said embodies love, that God is love. You can experience His love and receive His love today. And if you had, I hope you'll find your place on an altar. Amen. And thank God that you have come in contact with true love from the only one able to give it. Amen. If you've ever been able to show love to a lost and dying world as a Christian, you might want to thank God that He's put something in you that God can use to come out of you and deposit in the life of somebody else. Amen. For His honor and His glory. Thank you for making us part of your day. We would love to hear from you. Please find us on Facebook or at our website, bbclexington.com. Oh,